call the second on a personal note i was privileged to start my tenure as president on june the first 1984 with an audience with the holy father by mass by an audience uh, from the post breakfast coming the occasion and uh, i've had a chance to revisit the Bible a number of times after he was always extremely interested in the college. Uh, I had announced, or when I was asked for the title of the book, I had spoken of the concept of the gift as a key to understanding John Paul II, and I had forgotten that this was the anniversary of his death, and in the meantime I was working in the trying to figure out how I would present this key to the understanding of this thought, and a new title. So there's a discrepancy between the announced title and what you see in front of you. And I'm going to give as a key to understanding life and death. So in a certain sense, his life and death are captured in his thought, but he's given a new meaning, not only to life, but also to death on a theoretical and since this is a Catholic academic institution, I wanted to share with you some aspects which go counter to what is very often the impression that I received from people, John Paul II, you've all heard that slogan, John Paul II, we love you, so often. But so often I've also heard, but it's so hard to understand. And to a certain extent that was true, not only on the part of those who did not have any academic but I heard something analogous from many, many academicians who either didn't understand him or dismissed him or simply failed to grasp what he was talking about. I would propose to present to you in a non-formal lecture a key that should be accessible to every Catholic because his thought represents something that's extremely important in the church's activity and encounter the age. The evangelization, the new evangelization he was talking about, was something that he considered necessary given the character and the identity of the age, which he correctly identified as a culture of death. And he's given us a very profound key that can be used in non-academic context, but also in academic. So what I'll ask you to do is follow me, and there's a crystal on here, Nile. <laughs> <laughs> what I do with this? <laughs> a great one? It's not the This sounds like a marriage is in trouble. Oh, there we go. I will start with several thoughts, and then we'll explore the meaning of these quotation passages. It is opportunity, he says, at one point, in these lectures of the theology of the body, to turn again to those fundamental words which Christ used, that is, the word created, and the subject creator. They introduce, in considerations made so far, a new dimension a new criterion of understanding and interpretation which we will call the hermeneutics of the gift. The Pope is fully aware of what he's saying when he says 
a new criterion and a new understanding. And this antedates a very important point that he makes in faith for reasons a number of years afterwards, and there he makes two very important points. The first one, he charges his bishops, but by extension all those involved in meditation, with the very important task of restoring to youth the confidence in their own capacity to know so restoring the youth's confidence in their own capacity to know the truth. Among a number of other things, one struck me was extremely important. He said at one point, we have to have the courage to change our mental patterns of thinking. What do you mean by that? In the letter to families, he lists the very beginning a number of concepts. He says, uh, in a critical situation, because we have lost the very meaning, and he lists a whole series of concepts of marriage, including the faithful gift of self. Right? So, a number of things this age has failed to understand, and because of that, we have what he calls the culture of that. Okay? So, many years before faithful reason, he already announced something consciously. This is a new criterion for understanding. Now, the Holy Father, as the teacher, is not going to give us anything new in terms of the revelation of Catholic doctrine. He proposes for a renewed and deeper understanding. The very word is used by Paul VI and Maya a renewed and deeper understanding of the meaning of these truths which have always been in the possession of the church. But unfortunately, under the influence of the age, we've become habituated to certain patterns of thinking and have failed to go into depth at a time when the age needs the response. Not simply an affirmation of truths in the old patterns of thinking, but a going deeper. And then we can assert also deeper understanding of this book, the item cast out into and this takes courage. It takes courage to change the habitual patterns of thought. Before we go on, I would ask you to join me in a mental experiment. Right? You have a horizon in front of you, let's call it left zero, right 180 degrees. And I ask you to do the following. When I give the count, go from your left, and maybe in three seconds, just sweep your eyes across the horizon all the way to the right. Can we do that? But look at what's on the horizon in front of you. Right? Think whichever direction you're looking to go from the left to the right. So when I say three, turn from left to right and back to center. One, two, three. Okay, did everybody do that? Ah, some of you didn't want to play along. This is unique back in admissions, isn't it? Okay, I want you to close your eyes. How many of you can list 150 things at least that you've seen when you went from left to right? How many of you can do that? How about 100 things? 50? 15? 15? Can you do that in French? Hey, oui, monsieur. Ah, On the Deutsch. Thank you, Swahili. 
<laughs> if I give you one word to teach what you read, how many of you would notice that one thing? You would. Otherwise, if you have the word, you notice certain things. We don't know. Okay, what it says. The reason I'm saying this is because, as a matter of fact, whether you're an atheist or believer, when you look at reality in front of you, we all see the same things. We all see the truth that is given to us. The question is, what will we notice? And very often, almost invariably, what we notice is a function of the language, of the culture, and of the personal attitudes that we've developed in the course of life. And because of that, although we see the same truths when it comes to talking, we talk different languages. That's how the power of Babel began. It was a punishment given to us by God. And the reasons we don't need to go into, we'll see that later on, is the patterns of thinking that we use very often are not only the introduction into pointing out, you remember when you were children, your mommy would point out, touch your nose and say, she nose, and the baby <laughs> would laugh and give him to say, nose, ear, and sure enough, after what? In some cases, it would take you three years. Sure enough, the child begins to notice nose, ears, and so on and so on. Okay, it was a very important way of gaining a focus on the realities which we see. If she drew your attention to something else, you would learn a different language. But if there are realities in front of your nose for which there are no words, you won't notice that. And this is what John Paul has done when he provides us with a new criterion of understanding he uses a word out of daily language, perhaps less now in a capitalist economy than used to be the case, but it's an incredibly important key to understanding the dimension of reality that we see, but we have forgotten is the reality of the game. And he's saying the new thing is the key. It'll be a completely different way of understanding creation and creator. Another quote. Please so hold on to what I've said. The question of having the right words to see a dimension of reality that is staring us in the face. We're going to take a slight pause and go to another passage out of Benitaki's Splendor. And sure enough, there he gives us another word that is going to be extremely important in the context now of what we've announced as to do. He says at one point, the moral life presents itself as the response do. And in case you haven't noticed, I've emphasized the word response do. To the many gratuitous initiatives taken by God out of love for man, it is a response of love. Not possible for man by his own strength alone. He becomes capable of this love only by the virtue of the gift we see. So not only do we respond to the gratuitous and what is the gratuitous initiative? What is the gratuity? What is gratia? To the many gifts undertaken by God his initiative with regard to man. We respond to that also by virtue 
of a different speech. So even the response is something that we cannot initiate. We must have, in the traditional language, correct, the grace. Today, we're going to alter that concept of the term by adding this word, gift. Okay, only by virtue of the gift. Are we capable to respond with a total gift of self? Right? The gift is a key to understanding so many of not only the things, but also the critical issues of the age, beginning with the Trinity, going through creation, fatherhood, is certainly a neglected topic. It's beginning to be an issue. People are talking about it. But what is fatherhood? And it's a philosophical question. But it can be answered on a level that is accessible to everybody. You don't have to have a patient. You can also be understand. The nature of man, again, a technical term, of course, you think, perhaps. But the nature of man is implicitly presupposed at every step of what we're doing, not only here in the academy, but out there on the street. The incarnation, femininity and masculinity, a new criterion for understanding femininity and masculinity, which is sorely needed today when we have a problem of homosexuality and homosexual marriages. The human being stolen body can be subjected to a renewed and deeper understanding with the concept of the gift, and of course, procreation. We're not going to focus on all of these. We don't have the time. But I do want to focus on creation, fatherhood, perhaps the nature of man. To show you that the Holy Father is not alone, although he systematically announces this is a new material in the gift, I have a quotation from Mother Teresa in her constitutions. We must, why must we give ourselves fully to God? Because God has given himself to us. If God, who owes nothing to us, is ready to impart to us no less than himself, shall we answer with just a fraction of ourselves? Right? And echo this call to a title Shall we answer with only a fraction of ourselves? To give ourselves fully to God is a means of being God himself. I for God and God for me. I live for God and give up my own self. In this way, induce God to live for me. Therefore, to possess God, to possess God, we must allow Him to possess our souls. And Joseph Carter Rossiter, who happens to be by the grace of God, Benedict XVI, in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, an incredibly important book, he says, Jesus' own eye is always open into being with the Father. He is never alone, but is forever receiving himself from and giving himself back to the Father. He transforms the outward violence of the act of crucifixion into a speaking out about Jesus, into an act of freely giving his life for others. Jesus does not give something, but rather gives himself. And that is how he gives life. Okay? We came that, those words. How to give life. And that is the theme, of course, in the modern teaching, which begins with the words, the transmission of the human life. And who is it that transmission is life? It is the Father. Right? So here we have the basis for going on to more systematic analysis. At this point, we simply give the quotation out of the process. And that's about, again, 
Jesus. He draws light from being in relation, from receiving all as a gift. You will always need the gift of goodness of forgiveness. But in receiving it, you will always learn to pass on the gift to others. Now he's talking about human beings. We are in need, in need of receiving the gift, and we are always in receiving call to give it to others. And this is something that is an echo of what is the law of reciprocity. How many of you have heard of that in John Paul II? An incredibly important concept to let it pass in the gospel of life. The law of reciprocity. In receiving, he passes the gift on to others. And he says, oh, so again, he spoke. They are lovers who simply want to let God bestow his gifts upon them and thereby to live in an inner harmony with God's nature and word. The saying of St. Therese of this unit about one day standing before God with empty hands and holding them open to him <laughs> describes the spirit of the pilgrims of God that come with empty hands, not with hands of those who grasp and clutch but with hands that open and give and thus are ready to receive from God's bountiful goodness. We'll come back to this image. The body language, which we borrow from the body, to express the receiving. And this gesture of receiving is identical to what? The gesture of giving. These body languages, words are from the matter, express much more eloquently than very often tones written by academicians. The highest things, the things that really matter, we cannot achieve on our own. We have to accept them as gifts in the old tradition we speak of this. We have to accept them as gifts and enter the dy dynamic of the given society. The concept of a beautiful concept now is expressed by the words the dynamic of the gift. And this is a term that you repeat more often. Okay, go back. Smile. <laughs> There's no more back to her. <laughs> 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 In any case, I want to go back to the earlier quotations and, and, and start with the notion of creation. Is there a way I can go back to that? Right way? No. Don't do that. And show. Next. Previous success? Previous. Yeah. Okay. Doesn't want to listen to me. Now, I know that the question though, I'm certain that by now the juniors and the seniors certainly know what is creation, what is very important, the simple meaning of creation. Creation out of nothing. And that's true. Linguistically, it's a little bit difficult. They're coming out of into existence. Well, what comes into existence? There must be something that comes into existence. So we can begin having but you still said, Chris, I don't know if this is a way of thinking. There is something 
that comes into existence. This is a problem that Hegel had, along with that philosopher and other philosophers, to create out of nothing. How can something come out of nothing? The Greeks said nothing comes out of nothing. But today you have world famous academicians that insist on this ultimately the nothingness of our existence. Alright, so we have linguistic difficulties. What does creation mean? It simply means that at one point a being is that was not before. And he is by the power of God. But at this point we have to say something very important. Now, recently, Professor Louis Bouguet spoke of the Enlightenment, and he said the problem with the Enlightenment of the deist is that they reduce creation to an efficient causality. Again, the question you may not understand what an efficient cause is. An efficient cause is something that makes something be, or makes it to be what it is. Right? Particular efficient causes are hammers getting nails, but something more fundamental is creation. It's true. Professor Bouillet said the deist forgot that it takes a divine act. It's not only efficient causality. It's divine causality that explains creation. Without divine causality, efficient causality leads to ignorance. And that's what happened to the deist and the modern philosophers. With John Paul II, we take a further step. It's not enough to say it is divine causality to create. A very important distinction has to be made. I lost one of the quotations. In Divas and Misericordia, at one point, John Paul II speaks of God not only creating man, but binding himself to man by a link more intimate than that of creation. What could possibly be a link more intimate than that of creation? Again, if you seniors, you probably know this, freshmen will get to know this. In the Catholic tradition, God's imminence is spoken of in his speech. And that means that God is within his place. And when he creates, he doesn't create outside of the being created. He creates the creatures from within them. And therefore we have a very venerable tradition of divine imminence. Distorted, misunderstood, especially in the 19th and 20th century, reduced to a pantheism. But God is intimately present in every being by virtue of the fact that he doesn't bring it out of nothingness or bring it into existence outside of himself, but he brings something other than himself from within the creature. Well, we call it a mystery. <laughs> but a mystery is not something totally ununderstandable. The mystery can be grasped. Now, how do we grasp this mystery? John Paul II will help us by drawing attention to things that we experience within ourselves. And we'll come back to this later. The pantheists, I'm sorry, the pagans had a very profound sense of God's omnipotence. It takes an overwhelming power to bring something into existence, an overpowering power. And they had a sense of their own nothingness. They felt threatened by God. And how is this power of the omnipotent being tested? If there is a being other than this omnipotent power, 
Is this not a test to God's power? And how is God's power proven as omnipotent and absolute? Either by the utter negation of the creature or by the absorption of the creature into an identity with God. And both of these were heresies that were present throughout the Christian tradition, especially virulent in the 19th and 20th century. The nihilism that we see in the hands of a Heidegger or Sartre is not an accident. It's the response to the overpowering power of a being over against me who am master of my own being. It will lead to your destruction. I would rather become nothing than serve. I guess a repetition of Satan's, uh, of Milton's uh, Satan. The other way of testing this overpowering power of God is by the absorption of the creature. And this is why paganism very often was reduced to pantheism. And we have variations of this in modern secular age where everybody feels that he is God, the divine is in him, but they're identical with God, there's no transcendence of God. Now, these two ways of thinking reappear in the modern age because we have lost the sense of God's personal reasons for creating. Why does God create the human person? We saw the first initiative undertaken by God out of love for man is his creation of man. But that means because God creates a person, he doesn't simply cause the person to exist. He gives existence to the human being. And here you are, you're sitting there, you are overawed by this notion that your existence is a gift. You're sitting this, contemplating this, and out of left field comes this thing flying at you, hits you on the head, and you say, what is it? And the professor says, that was a gift. What do you say? What do you say? Dr. O'Donnell, I'm sorry that I singled you out, but Dr. O'Donnell said, thank you. <laughs> now, could I have a freshman here? Is there a freshman in class? I want you to ask Dr. O'Donnell, Dr. O'Donnell, why should you not have said thank you? Is there a freshman? Volunteer to ask? I bet you know, no, we're not going to put Dr. O'Donnell on the spot, but I do want a freshman. I want you to answer and tell me why Dr. O'Donnell should not have said thank you. I can't see, with all this light coming to my face, I can't see the freshman. Are you that timid at Christendom? How about a freshman girl? Guys, you're wimps. <laughs> Okay, stand up, freshman girl. Oh, there we are. Where? Where? What's your name? Stand up, please. Have the courage. Okay, three of you, stand up. Okay. Your, your name is? Barbara. Why shouldn't he have said thank you? Oh. 
This, ladies and gentlemen, is wisdom. I just hate to see the day when you approach your sophomore years, which is the foolish wise men. Right? You will begin to lose it in the academy because you, well, I don't know, in Christendom, you might not be taught different patterns of mental thinking. But do you realize you've said a very profound metaphysical truth? Did you know you spoke metaphysics? You knew you spoke prose. That wasn't poetry. But for me, that was poetry because it was metaphysics. The only way, the proper way, the response due to a gift is to receive it. He never had a chance to receive. And that was Sartre's complaint. Not only was he not asked whether he wanted to exist, he was thrown into existence. And that's Heidegger's complaint. Our existence is a thrownness. You see how completely they've forgotten the personal relationship between the creator as father and the creature as a person that is not thrown into existence. The rest of the universe is simply the result of this overpowering of God who with a generous hand throws the universe into existence, strews it in all of its bounty, and it speaks of God's bounty. But man's existence, the existence of person, is not something thrown. It's not an effect. It's not a product, as some would make it in artificial conception. It is a gift given, and if it is a gift given, the response due to it is receiving. Thank you comes later. Again, Dr. Tim is so impatient, he's racing ahead. We'll come to that. But before we can say thank you, we have to open ourselves and to receive it. And to open ourselves and to receive it, we have to do what? Can we that we're holding in our hands and today we are urged to take possession of ourselves and the modern woman will come back to what the modern man says the modern woman says I am my own and I will not belong to any man we'll come back to that Okay, so again, we borrow the language of the body, and this is already a preparation for understanding the relationship between soul and body, which we're not going to do in depth tonight. Are we running out of time? No? Okay. We borrow the language of the body, which I remember seeing the first time many years ago. I was a fresh teacher at the University of Dallas, a liberated nun. We had just received permission from the Vatican, a grudging permission, to receive communion in the hand. The rubrics were spelled out. You come up there with your hand open, supported by the other. You receive the host, and then you take it and reverently you consume it on the side. She comes up there, has her hands up. The priest raises the host, and she takes her hand and snatches it out of the hand of the priest. What an incredible difference between the receiving hand and the hand referred to in the quotation by Cardinal Grotzenberg, the, you see this? You're watching my hand? You see this? That is the grasping hand. 
there's an incredible difference between receiving and appropriating. And indeed, the difference is so great that in his theology of the body, John Paul II identifies the very meaning of sin. Not only original sin, but of all sin, by saying it consists not in the receiving of the gift, but the appropriation of the gift and the rejection of the giver and his love. It's certainly a deeper understanding of the meaning of sin. That God offers us, in this case, our very existence. We take what is offered, we take possession of it, but by way of appropriating. And what does the word proper mean? Property. Ownership. God offers us his existence instead of receiving it. We appropriate it and say, it's my own. And what does Christ say of this appropriation, which John Paul also speaks of as an expropriation of the gift, an extortion of the gift, a theft of the gift? What does our Lord say? He says literally, and this is Federica's translation, he who takes possession of his life in order to keep it for himself will lose it. He who takes possession of his life in order to keep it for himself will lose it. So certainly, receiving the gift is an incredibly important notion because it means an opening of oneself. But do you know something? Can stones open themselves? Can oranges open themselves? Can they be opened? Yes, but that's only a physical dimension. Oranges don't have an inner being. They don't have an inner space. Can animals open themselves? Certainly not. They have an animal soul, which gives them a kind of interiority, a mimicking of a human person, but they certainly have no inner dimension. Only a person has a metaphysical space that can contain something in him, and the traditional word for that was kapax, and the thing that he was made to contain was, seniors, God. He was kapax day. But you notice, we enter more deeply into this notion of kapax day by saying that the person has an inner space that can be open or closed, and when does this become important? It becomes important in relationship to the giver of a gift because I have to open myself. I have to empty my hands, open my soul in its inner depths, and man has an inner depth, he has interiority, a major concept in Calroid Ewa and John Paul II, the interiority of man, which he also calls subjectivity. And that inner space can contain, it can be filled, you can experience yourself as fulfilled, or you can experience yourself as empty and despair of ever being fulfilled. And this is happening to more and more young people in this modern age. Okay, so opening yourself, receiving is very important. Now, I simply make an asterisk here. This is incredibly important for the philosophy of the human person, and especially for understanding women. 
because we all know that women by nature are passive. The modern woman wants to be aggressive. But women are really passive and they should know that a virtuous life is life according to nature. Isn't that right, women? Yes, just like women. You agree with what a man says. Very good. Very good. Is that guys applauding back there? You've got yours coming later, gentlemen. Okay? That's a major error that has plagued the history of Western thought from before the Socratics, the pre-Socratics, right through the modern age. Carl Stern, a famous psychiatrist, writes a tremendously important book, Flight from Woman, where he correctly analyzes the sickness of the age, but he equates the essential characteristic of women, which he recognizes to be receptivity, with passivity. And throughout the history of philosophy and thought and normal culture, we have non-philosophers, the tendency has been to take women as to be meek, passive, submissive. But passivity is the hallmark of the feminine. Whereas men are active. Right? Men go out into the world to be its conquerors, rulers, lords. And they prove their lordship by dominating women. And we know that from scripture. Genesis, right? You will yearn from him and he shall dominate you. I have scriptural confirmation of this. Okay? Passive active. Total failure because of a mental pattern of thinking to recognize the unique nature of receptivity. Receptivity is the, antith the antithesis of passivity is not activity. The antithesis of both passivity and activity is receptivity. You simply can't let yourself go and be receptive. You have to take yourself into your own hands in order to open your being. So in other words, receptivity is the antithesis of passivity because in order to be receptive, you have to possess yourself. Can you imagine yourself giving a gift of alcohol to an alcoholic? Can you imagine? He's going to do what? He's going to appropriate and grasp it and take it, but he can't help himself. In the old days, we used to say he's a slave to his sin. Today, we say he's a slave to his addiction. And girls, when you meet a guy like that, you better watch it because he doesn't fully possess himself. And if he's a slave or if he's addicted to sex, can he make you a legitimate offer of marriage? Can you offer yourself in marriage to somebody who's a slave addict? Addict of sexuality? No. He doesn't possess himself. Okay? So self-possession is a fundamental moment of receptivity. And receiving is a personal because only a person can possess himself. And therefore only a person can receive a gift. And that gift is never an overwhelming cause. It's a free offer. Okay, you got that, girls? Got that? 
so here he comes to you. He's been hounding you for the last five, six weeks. You know from everybody he wants to marry, but he's the last guy in the world he would marry. And he comes to you and he says, Here, Barbara, you've been singled out. You have now a chance to receive a gift from me. Here, take this little daisy. And you look at him, the poor guy, decrepit, broken down, you know, and, and he, he's just, he's miserable. And your heart goes out to him, and you feel sorry for him, and you do what? I can't hear you, Barbara. What a woman, what a heart. You would take the gift? smart woman, but that's because she's a freshman. By the time they get to be seniors and don't have a guy, they're desperate. Okay, now, let's, let's, let's leave the seniors alone. We're going to test Barbara. Barbara, here he comes again, and this time he's got a gift, and it's a diamond worth $15 million. And says, Barbara, here's a gift for you. Will you take it? No. Wow. Some freshman girls you got here. Why not? Now, you explain to me, Barbara. Why wouldn't you accept the gift? Barbara, you're, t you're talking like a woman from your intuition. Give me a reason. <laughs> Barbara, because when you accept the gift, you accept... And if you don't believe me, accept the gift, the next thing he's going to do is say, Oh, honey, take me. And you say, what are you talking about? And then he says, because when you accept the gift, you accept the, the giver. Right? The primitives out there in the Pacific Islands, they had a gift economy, and they had an understanding that in every gift given is the how, the spirit of the giver. And ultimately, it was the spirit of their ancestors, and before that, of the gods. They were ridiculed by the modern scientists. The, the scientists wanted to reject that. They wanted to retain the gift economy, because that was the answer to capitalism. But they rejected this incredible intuition that in the gift is the spirit of the giver. And when you accept the gift, you accept the giver. What a radical distortion is when you take the gift and reject the giver and his love. Okay, so in receiving, you open yourself to the gifts that are given, but more importantly, you open yourself to the giver. The spirit of giving. And the spirit of giving is ultimately God. The absolute person. We still haven't gotten to the critical point of thanks. Because we're only at the first stage of receiving. And this is where we have another step deeper into the understanding of creation. The creature, God creates the rest of creation as it were finished. 
It takes billions of years for it to run through all the laws that are imminent in it, but nothing ever becomes that it was not already in the beginning. Even when it's active potential, even that acorn, that poor, miserable acorn that has been abused in so many philosophy classes as an example of entelechy, that acorn will never become anything other than an oak, right? So everything is essentially finished, except the human person. Why? Because a human person is a person. In order to exist as a person, he or she has to take possession of his being and to acquire something that God did not put into him in a creative act. In other words, you are to finish the creation. You are, believe it or not, called to procreate before you ever look at a guy or a girl. You're to finish the creation of your own being by taking possession of your being and acquiring a new feature. And what is that feature that you acquire? In the old technical terminology, you become moral. God doesn't create you a liar or a truth-sayer. That's not potentially present in you. What is present in you is the possibility of saying the truth or rejecting the truth. But your actual saying it, like the invitation to tea. Will you come to tea, Barbara? Will you come to tea? Yes. She's acting just like a woman, according to her nature. No, she says, I'm a liberated woman. I belong to myself, and therefore this yes is my yes. It's not the expression of my nature, some urge, some instinct, maternal instinct, mating instinct, whatever it is. It's my word spoken in response to you. And in saying that yes, something new comes into existence which was not there as a part of your nature. And now, less abstractly than a yes or no, to an invitation to tea, you have a yes or no to goodness. And that's where man acquires a feature that marks his being, becomes a property of his being that marks it to the profoundest depth. He becomes morally good or morally evil. Right? So morality is not simply following a law. It's the becoming something. What? Becoming morally good. And moral goodness is the primary property of God and His holiness. So somehow we are called to finish God's creation by becoming morally good. But we can do that only by receiving the gift taking into our own possession. But how do we become morally good? By giving it in response. And what is it that we do when we give in response? The gesture of receiving is the same as the gesture of giving. And when that little child comes over, that little two-year-old boy comes home to you, says, Mama, here, here's some grass I found for you. Here's some pebbles. And here, in this fro I got a frog for you and a worm and his empty pockets. And he says, and Mama, in the end, take me. He's expressing his what? 
technical term for that is gratitude. You give grace. You give thanks. You give a gift in return. And this is the basis for the law of reciprocity and thought of Carol Wojtyla and John Paul II. The proper response due is gratitude. And gratitude is a total gift of self appropriate to what is given. You don't give a total gift to yourself in response for a frog or a worm. But in the gift is the giver. The soul of that little two or three year old. And what does mommy do? She accepts the whole boy, the whole son, the whole child, because that is what is contained in every gift. And in giving the gift of self, we render thanks, and the Greek word for thanksgiving is Eucharisto. I give you thanks. The Holy Eucharist is the act of Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who gives the response due to God, which Adam failed to give at creation. And what was creation? Creation was a wedding gift to Adam and to Eve. And at that wedding, Adam and Eve received as gifts the whole universe, all the stars, all the galaxies, all the laws of the universe, the earth and all of its beauty and majesty, and especially they received each other. And this is another element in the teachings of John Paul II. Not only is your existence given as a gift to you, but your existence is a gift given to me also. So therefore, in the letter to families in the gospel of life, he says, each individual is given to every other individual. And the culture of death consists in this, that man refuses to accept the gift of life. He's not only talking about the gift of life in the womb. He's talking about the life that is each one of you that is given as a gift to me. In the traditional language, we use the term neighbor, but now we give a deeper understanding. The neighbor is a gift given to me, and the response due to my neighbor is the total gift of self, which is a gift of love. But giving what is due is also a response of justice. Justice and love come together here. And this is what is meant by Christ when he says, not one iota of the law has been unfulfilled. What is the law? The law of death is the obligation to give what is due to God. We're bound by this obligation, except we cannot do that because we lost the capacity in Adam. Even if Adam wanted, desired, and prayed for the day when he could give himself totally in adoring and worshiping God, he was no longer metaphysically capable. And yet he was under the law of death because man was bound under the pain of death of giving what is due to God, namely himself. Nobody can do it for man. Nobody can do it for man. Except the man was also God. So therefore man did pay the debt which he was no longer capable of paying because this man was also God. He pays to God the debt of gratitude, which is a debt of love. 
and gives us the opportunity of joining him and rendering thanksgiving or Eucharisto to God. But to do that, we have to become a part of him. And he's given us the tremendous privilege of joining him in the body of Christ. So in that sense, the gift here helps us to understand this dramatic dialogue between God and man who doesn't throw man into existence or simply project him. He gives him his existence, and unlike some modern philosophers who claim that man can now keep himself from himself, he says, I want in return yourself. Ah, the gift is not free, comes the complaint. What do you mean, God says? A gift is supposed to be free, not in exchange for what you get out of it. And therefore, you're dishonest, says the modern philosopher. And he fails to understand that the reason I give a gift is not because I want something out of it, and yet I can demand something in return. Why? Because I give a gift out of... We saw that in the quotation right? Out of love. And if I love you, and every teenage boy knows that when he falls in love with a girl, the one thing he wants the girl to say is, Joey, Henry, Tommy, I'm your gal. I'm your possession. Take me. I want you to own me. I'm not a feminist. I don't want to be my own woman. I want to be yours. And if you love me, you want me to be yours, and therefore you will receive me. There's a difference between giving in order to get something in return and giving out of love and demanding that the beloved belong to me. And this is what they fail to understand because they fail to understand the meaning of love. Love is a response to the preciousness of another. In this response, I find myself loving and not one of us. Can you imagine he takes you to the fancy restaurant on top of some tower in D.C., to a fancy dinner in the 736, and he says, Barbara, take out your notebook, your diary. And Barbara's heart is palpitating. He says, I want to say something very important to you. And she's almost swooning, but she takes out her diary, and he says, I, Francis, at 737, one minute past, 737, want you to know that I have decided to love you, Barbara. Why are you laughing? This is so frivolous. A girl laughing. The guy is putting his heart out in front of you and she's laughing at him. Why are you laughing, Barbara? La di da. You have decided to love me? And every girl knows that when a guy falls in love, it's because he falls. He hasn't decided. He fell in love, language says. He was rendered captive. He was enthralled by her beauty. He has become her abject slave. And he says, it's your fault I've lost. But she says, I didn't do anything. 
and she didn't, but it's her preciousness, her beauty, it's not her act, but the initiative came from the side of the beloved, and she has captured him, she has taken him prisoner, she has moved him and pulled him out of himself, and he has fallen in love. Now, a lot of guys fall in love, and then they fall into bed, and they fall into marriage. Not necessarily in that order. Right? They fail to take possession of themselves. In other words, his love is a movement that started out there. It is the initiative of the beloved. It is the initiative of God. We, of our own will, cannot initiate these movements of the heart. It's a gift received. But we have to make it our own, and many fail to make it their own. They're simply moved. Flow with the force, Luke. You remember that? Just let yourself go. And many guys let themselves go, gentlemen, and this is the origin of the wimp syndrome. When you let yourself go, when you let it hang all out, you're a slob. You're no longer in possession of yourself. But we forget that. Why? Because we're in the throes of these romantic moments, the movements of the heart, and we fail to take possession of ourselves. So what John Paul helps us to understand, and this is a key element in his thought already in Calvary that a central characteristic of the human person as person is the power to possess ourselves. And what does that mean? To be our own. Right on, feminist. You have to be your own woman. Because when you're not your own woman, you cannot give yourself in love. But if love is nothing but passion and satisfaction, then there's no need to give yourself. Because when you're tempted by satisfaction, not called, invited by goodness and beauty and truth. When you're tempted by that cigarette, you're tempted by that extra dessert, or that good dish, or that luscious dish, what do you do? You obey the summons? No. You yield to the temptation. And what do you do when you yield to temptation? You let go of yourself. You lose possession of yourself. You're no longer acting like a person. You're no longer free. And if you're not free, you're a slave. And you can't give yourself anymore. Right? So what the Holy Father is saying is the key element of being a person is to possess ourselves. Many secular philosophers say that. And the echo of that is in the feminist. I am my own woman. But the moderns can provide no explanation of why do we own ourselves. And they're amazed, and then disturbed, and then they despair, because making frantic, intense effort to possess themselves, to keep themselves from themselves, they find themselves losing possession of themselves. And they just start going to self-help seminars. They make millionaires out of psychiatrists. And everybody's losing possession of themselves, despairing. And today there are more and more young people already at the level of adolescence who commit suicide out of despair. Despair of what? Ever being their own. And they can't understand that in order to be your own, you have to forget about being your own and discover the one thing necessary, that which is good and beautiful outside of you and that which calls, that which moves your heart, not 
not the rhythm of metal rock or that booming bass that's shaking you to the core of your being as you're stopped at a red light in Washington, D.C. Okay? It's a response to a call and invitation that bids you come out of yourself rather than to yield to yourself, and only then will you find yourself. Right? So it's a paradox. Unless you die to yourself, St. Paul says, unless you take off the old man, you will not come to life. Now, long before wars or shooting or physical death, there's the spiritual death of a person that loses possession of himself because he seeks the satisfaction which is always attendant to a gift. It's the consequence of a gift. It follows a gift. And those of you who had a chance to read Love and Responsibility will remember around page 32, 33, where Tiwa says, our actions are accompanied by feelings of pleasure and pain. And then he says, because man is a rational animal, he can aim at pleasure and pain and make that his end or motive. Namely, not all men seek the good. There are some, maybe few, that seek their own satisfaction, and they shall be called wimps. Because that is the meaning of what we find today. There's a real wimp syndrome. It's, it's, it's a disease that is sweeping, especially the first world, that men have lost their manhood, and in part, only in part, it's a new lecture, because of the tyranny of relativism. Men can make up their minds. They can't be decisive. Have you heard of that? Why can't they be decisive? To be decisive, you have to know the world. But if everything is doubtful, if everything is gray, and if relativism reigns about everything, then how can you be decisive? But that's only one of the aspects of the year. The other syndrome is we're taught to seek satisfaction, and that means to yield to satisfaction, and when we do that, we lose possession of ourselves, and an inner rupture occurs within the soul. A separation happens within the soul. That happened in the case of Adam. That separation was not deadly, but it was death-dealing. It was lethal. And because of that inner rupture within man, which is the consequence of choosing my satisfaction and yielding to it rather than serving the good and the other, because of that, a rupture occurs between the giver and his love, between God and man. Because of that, a rupture occurs between man and nature, but most importantly, a rupture occurs between man and woman. Because man appropriates woman for his satisfaction. And the only alternative is to serve the woman, and to serve is to reign, to be a king and to be a lord but to serve the good, not warrior, not king, not hunter. These are accidental characteristics of the male or masculine. The true meaning of masculinity is to serve, and serve means to give a gift of self, and now we're coming back to the link that is more intimate than that of creator. To serve is to make a gift of self, and when you 
make a gift of self in the imitation of God, you will transmit and bring to life. You will, don't be shocked now, be genital rather than lethal. You will be life-bearing. And the meaning of fatherhood is the one who transmits his life in a gift of self. And in God, this giving of self is so incredibly potent because it is loving that it generates a second person, not creates. It generates. And that is the fatherhood of God, the Father. And Christ's mission was to transmit the life of the Father to men. And this is why Christ participates in the mission of God's fatherhood. He's entrusted with that mission. And the priest is entrusted with that mission of fatherhood too. And here fatherhood comes before masculinity and femininity. It is a spiritual characteristic of the divine person and we have been given the inestimable privilege of participating in God's fatherhood. How many angels are there on the head of a pen? Can anybody tell me that? Thousands, myriads. Of those myriads of angels, which one angel is the father of another angel? angel is the father or parent of another angel. Why? Because a contingent spirit is metaphysically, you can put that word in brackets, maybe you'll read it again when you're senior, but it means that a created spirit is absolutely incapable of transmitting himself in the gift of life. He's incapable of generating. Only God can do that. And yet you say, Federica, that man has been given the privilege of participating in God's fatherhood? Yes, and it's a new topic, come back another time. He has been given a body that is so intimately connected interiorly to the soul that in giving my body, I give myself. Not just my body, I give myself. And in that sense, it's a genuine transmission of self. Angels can't do that. And in a certain sense, the whole mystery of man and woman in their masculinity and femininity is a reflection of the fact that man has been called to transmit life, to receive life. Why? Because if man is alone, as Adam was alone in the Garden of Paradise, he was in original solitude. He couldn't give himself back to God. Why? Because he was created in the image of God. God is a community of person, of mutual giving and receiving. Quoting Ratzinger, Jesus constantly receives and gives everything that he has received back to the Father. And that is the inner community of the Trinity. Man was created in the image of God. Adam was alone. He can't give himself back to God. He needs help desperately. And to the extent that he refuses this help, he's a wimp. To the extent that he's willing to accept it, he will discover her and say, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones, find me this one. In other words, he's saying, see, he's a man, he doesn't fully know. He's anticipating the words of Eve when she says of her firstborn, 
with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And here we have the mystery of the first bride and the first queen, who is also the father of the bride. Because after all, where did Eve come from? She came from the side of Adam in a mystery of sleep of unconsciousness he was not given the full privilege of being aware of the fa his fatherhood of eve he was given the task of bringing a new life to eve and not conceiving that life in a womb but bringing her to life with his love and service as she brought him to life a new level of consciousness he begins to live only when he sees another like him to whom he can give in a total gift of self receive her in a mutual receiving again and only now having become one flesh can they make the response due to God which is a total gift of self not each next to the other but we as one and that becoming one an incredible mystery of marriage occurs and is consummated and then actualized every time husband and wife give themselves to each other as in the first time. So the incredible mystery of human sexuality can be understood only from the point of view of a gift of self in which man is called to transmit his life. And on this basis, we understand why there's a transmission of life simply in loving another person. The young man who falls in love for the first time is as if he were born for the first time. He comes to life. And therefore, ultimately, the whole mystery of life to death can be reduced to this, that we open ourselves to the gift which is initiated by the giver, who, as it were, breathes it into us. We come alive when we open and receive it, but imagine receiving the gift of life, the breath of God, Imagine holding that breath, you die. You have to breathe out. Okay, so when you're inspired, you have to expire, and that is called respiration, and that is life. But if you hold on, having grasped, clutched that which was given, taking it in yourself, but not really opening yourself because you're already closing in upon yourself, surely you will die. And that's what occurs in this loss of self. We become sensitive to our inner depths, emptiness, we despair, we are no longer capable of breathing out, expiring, in the words of St. Paul, and that means dying to our satisfaction. And John Paul has given us a new understanding of the culture of death, but he also has given us understanding of the Christian tradition, exemplified by Christ, that we are not passive women, but no longer are men passive. Especially this is important in an age of suffering, where everybody's a victim in pain and suffering. Until you read the lives of the saint, and you have this incredibly astounding statement by the saint, I long to suffer out of love. She must be crazy. Who wants to suffer? Nobody wants to suffer if suffering is passivity. 
But just as receiving can become your personal act, expiring and suffering can become a personal act, as it was in the case of Christ, whose life was not taken from him, but who laid down his life and died for us. In this case, death is no longer passivity, is no longer tragedy. It is the victory of a love that comes out of itself because it makes a gift of self and only then begins to live. And that gift of self is triumphant even in bodily death and suffering. And this is the good news of the new gospel of life of John Paul II who's given us an incredibly inexhaustible richness of the gospel in certain new mental patterns which require a little bit of effort. But as, and I'll end with these words, as Ratzinger says in his uh, book Jesus of Nazareth, and of course those of you who read it will know that he's attempting here to contemplate this, to contemplate the face of Christ. Why? Because he wants to see the face of Father, of the Father. And he says the reason the Father's face is visible in Christ is because Christ in speaking spoke from that attitude of prayer and in his prayer to the Father he beheld the Father. And that means when Christ spoke his words, he spoke from seeing. These incredibly important words, not only in an academic atmosphere, you speak not because you've heard the propositions from your professors. You speak from seeing because you have gained an insight. You have seen with your own eyes. So in this sense, I don't want to reinterpret the gospel, but in a certain sense, blessed are those who have seen the truth. For then their eyes will see that which the natural eye cannot see. Right? So the specific task of the new evangelization, but especially of the new academics, is to gain a vision, a sight of that which is accessible to our vision or reason. And then we will be able to speak from seeing, and in that sense speak persuasively and convincingly, not because we speak from reason, but because reason now serves sight. So in that sense, we certainly have a new criterion, a new understanding of the mystery of creation, of life, and of death. And I'll leave you with these words. I've went over my time grievously, have I not? Okay, thank you. permission to say thank you, so I say thank you. There will be a reception over at the John Paul the Great Student Center in Killian's Cafe for Dr. and Mrs. Federica. We urge all of you who can to please come join us. If you'd like to carry on the discussion and ask a question, it would be wonderful to have you all there right after this. Let us conclude the evening with the singing of the Regina Chaley. Regina Chaley.